Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today, Dr. Murray Fulton and I will be discussing what's going on with the Canadian Wheat Board. Murray is an agricultural economist and a professor in the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. He has a long interest in agricultural policy and in marketing systems. He is the co-author of a report by the Economic Council of Canada titled Canadian Agricultural Policy and Prairie Agriculture and has extensively studied the structure and behavior of the agricultural marketing systems. Murray, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Murray, what's going on? How, how do we start this? How do we start to understand what's going on uh, with the Canadian Wheat Board? And, and keep in mind, there'll be people tuning in who aren't aware of the, the current situation. Good starting point, Brady. Here's what's going on. What we're seeing in Canada over this next year, um, and um, so by next um, summer, um, we will have in place in Canada a completely different marketing system for wheat and, um, and that includes durum and uh, barley for, for human consumption, malting barley. Um, and when I say a completely different system, I, I mean that in the strongest sense. What is happening is, a, is the replacement of a marketing system that, while it's evolved in, in some considerable ways, is uh, has retained the, the the major fundamental structure um, that it acquired back in the 1930s and the 1940s. Uh, and, and that's a, a sort of a mixture of an administrative and market system with Canadian Wheat Board playing um, a key role in that grain handling and marketing uh, and, and, tra and, sorry, and transportation system for those uh, grains, wheat and, and barley um, in Western Canada. Um, what we're uh, what we're going to have by next um, July is some kind of um, much more um, market-oriented system without um, the wheat board, at least without um, the, the, the wheat board as a compulsory um, marketing agency, which has been the case since the 1930s. There, there is still a question, I'll come to this at some point, um, about whether or not a voluntary wheat board might be in place. Um, but regardless um, that central role that the Canadian Wheat Board was playing um, no, will no longer um, exist. And um, uh, there's considerable discussion going on uh, by farm organizations, um, the industry uh, participants, these are the railways, the elevator companies, the millers, uh, as to what exactly what kind of rules are going to be um, put in place um, come next July and August. All right, so one of the, the terms that's often used is this single desk selling authority. And my understanding is that that ensures that the Canadian Wheat Board can basically purchase all of the wheat and barley for export or human consumption. And is that for all of Canada or just particular provinces? The, the Wheat Board only applies to the, the western wheat growing area. So this um, includes the, the, the grain growing areas in um, Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta and then up into the Peace um, River area um, as, as well. Um, so wheat growing in Ontario does not, for instance, does not um, come under the auspices of the Canadian Wheat Board. Um, you're right, um, the, uh, the term that um, is used 
is um, the single desk selling, and this is um, this is actually key to that central role that the Canadian Wheat Board has um, has been playing. What um, just very quickly, what the cent- what the single desk uh, means is that all farmers in the Canadian Wheat Board area are required by legislation to deliver um, their um, wheat um, or durum or barley for for human consumption to um, the Canadian Wheat Board. And the Canadian Wheat Board then, um, on behalf of the the farmers, then markets that grain both domestically and internationally. What the board then, and this is an additional element, and it's it's not strictly connected with the single desk, though it's grown up with it. Um, What the Wheat Board has done um, for the most part then is take that grain, um, sorry, all the receipts um, from that grain that it sells and offers back to farmers a single pooled price. So all farmers' um, basis, the export position, get um, the same price. So regardless of whether the grain that the farmer sold was uh, and d- delivered to uh, the Canadian Wheat Board was sold in, say, November at a particular price or in May at a different price or even sometime in the middle of July at perhaps yet a third price, all those all, all farmers would get um, exactly the, the same price. Now, um, what I need to say is that that's adjusted, for the, the, the price that an individual farmer will get will be adjusted for where that farmer is located um, in the grain growing region. And the reason is that off of that uh, price that the wheat board provides um, has to come the cost of grain transportation and uh, grain handling. And and depending upon where you are um, and the kinds of distance you are to port or the the degree of competition that there might be between grain elevators, farmers will end up um, having a different deduction one from another. Okay, I, I want to kind of work through maybe a simple example of that, but I also want to then um, talk a little bit about the change that's coming, because as, as I understand, uh, the change actually hasn't happened yet, and I think there's some interesting nuances there, but first let me just make sure I've got it straight. So if I'm a wheat farmer right now, under the single desk selling authority, say I've harvested my wheat crop, walk me through really quick how I'll work with the elevator and the price that I'll receive, again, building off of what you just said abstractly, but say I've, I'm done with harvest, what what happens to me now? Well, what farmers will will have done um, and I, um, I won't give you all the, the, the gory details, but uh, what they would have done in the spring is signed a contract with the Canadian Wheat Board indicating roughly what their planting intentions were going to be so that they said, well, I'm going to be um, roughly um, seeding this much um, wheat, this much durum, for instance, um, and uh, malting barley if, if that's what they were doing. So the Wheat Board has um, an indication of the, the amounts of grain roughly um, that are going to be out there, and they um, they adjust these planting intentions, of course, for um, yields that are um, that are occurring. So the the wheat board, if you like, um, has a basic idea of um, how much grain it has. It keeps pretty good track of the quality that's coming in. If there is an early frost, then in, in a particular area, they know that that grain's um, you know maybe marked down to a number two or um, something like that. And as the wheat board. Um, as their customers come forward um, and say, we need grain of a particular type, they will go out to farmers and ask the farmers to deliver on those contracts that they had signed back in the spring. And so they may come and say, in November, we want you to deliver 25% of that contract that you had signed. And so farmers then would deliver that, that grain 
And here's where it's interesting. The farmers now have the have complete choice as to which elevator company they would like to to deal with. And what's happening um, at the same time is as the board puts out these calls to, to the farmers for grain, they um, at the same time approach the elevator companies and have the elevator companies bid on the, the right to fulfill uh, those contracts. And so, for instance, um, Viterra, um, the, the largest grain handler, may um, decide to bid on a particular amount and it is then up to Viterra to make arrangements with the railway to have um, sufficient cars in place. Um, now, the, the, the railway also has to coordinate with, with the Canadian Wheat Board, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in, in just a second. At the same time, the elevator company has to go out and make sure that it's offering the right kinds of incentives to farmers to get that grain delivered, in this case, to the Viterra elevators rather than to um, a competitor elevator. Um, and so um, you have what I'm um, calling a, a mixture of sort of an administrative system with the wheat board sort of providing the broad demands that the system needs to meet and then having bidding going on or um, ordinary market competition to actually get the operational um, components to fit to, um, to those macro um, demands. So um, let me just continue on that. So um, a, a farmer will then say, okay, I'm going to deliver to uh, Viterra. Uh, they, will, they may, for instance, have a trucking subsidy in place that um, has encouraged them to go to Viterra rather than to, say, one of the competitors. The, the farmer would deliver that. They would get what's called an advance payment that pays them a f some proportion of what the, the wheat board anticipates will be the final payment. Um, do and the reason that the board doesn't pay out the entire amount is that um, the board um, has to to keep that contingency in place in case the market um, should tank sometime in the future and um, the, the the board would not be able to to sort of meet its obligations without incurring a deficit. This procedure occurs over the year with farmers delivering um, getting their advance payment at the end of the crop year, so at the end of um, sometime in July, the board totals up all the revenue that, um, it, that it had obtained, divides that through roughly by the amount of grain, um, and this is done by, by various classes. So you, you look at uh, a, a top grade versus, um, you know, uh, dropping down to a second grade and so forth. You know, each of those will, will be done separately. They will, will take that total revenue, divide by the total um, number of bushels uh, or tons that were sold um, and come up with that average price. The farmer then will get um, the difference between that final price and the initial price that they had been paid. Now, um, often the, the board knows um, or has a pretty good sense partway through the year that they are going to um, be able to pay out a final price and they'll have some interim payments to farmers that get a little bit closer to that final price. Now, meanwhile, the farmer also then has to pay the elevator company and the railway for the grain that they are, are hauling. And so they will have a bill that they will pay at the elevator that will break out um, the amount that the elevator company is collecting for storage and handling, as well as the amount that the, the, the railway has charged the elevator company to haul that grain to port. So at, at the end of the day, the farmer gets that average kind of world price, which is the price at the port position, typically Vancouver, but, but occasionally Thunder Bay, minus their costs of, of actually getting it to that location.
And with this, you know, typically contrast, so in the absence of then the single desk selling authority, farmers would deal with the grain handling and the transportation and typically bring it to a grain elevator and then get the price on um, that day. Is that too simplistic or? Um, Not too simplistic at all. That's exactly what will happen. Now, um, typically the elevator company will have contracted with the railway. And so once again, the farmer will simply see a, in this case, they will simply see a a final price at the elevator that they would get. And um, if they deliver the grain that day, they would get that price. Um, If they wait the next day, they they will get whatever that, um, that price is. That price is typically based off a futures market um, with what's called the basis built in um, or um, subtracted off, uh, which is the difference between, um, again, if you like that price at the port minus um, all these additional costs. Now, one thing I I did want to touch on, because I I think it's really kind of fascinating and a real difference between what's going on in Canada in terms of this and what might would go on in a kind of a, a similar situation in the United States. The actual change that we're talking about anticipating is occurring in August 2012. But as far as, as I understand it, the legislation actually hasn't come up yet. But we can anticipate it because uh, the current government has a majority. And I wonder if in the United States, even if some say the Democrats or the Republicans controlled both houses, if you could be as certain that a policy would go through as certain as we are that this one is going through. In other words, we're talking about it as it's going to happen because uh, the conservatives have said that it's part of their policy and we expect it to go through uh, without a hitch. Yes. I guess what I would um, just add to that, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think this is actually one of the real advantages of, of, of perhaps our political system in this particular case is that one of the worst things that could happen is having uncertainty over what kind of marketing system we, we were going to have. There's lots of debate going on in the countryside these days as to whether or not you know this is a good move or a bad move. Regardless, if there's going to be a change, what you want to have is a situation that we have where we know that it's going to be one way or the other. And um, this allows uh, at least the opportunity to, to, to plan and to get expectations at least somewhat in order before um, the change actually um, occurs. Um, it would really um, be pandemonium, I think, if it was uncertain as to which um, system was going to be in place come next August. Real, real interesting difference. I want to move to a little bit of the debate about the capacity of the wheat board to increase prices. Um, what I'd like to do is kind of, I, I reviewed some of the literature, and I think I'd like to just lay out my understanding of it and kind of get your comment. You may feel like this isn't actually where the conversation needs to be, and, and that's fine, then we can move on to it. But when I was looking through it as an agriculture economist, it seemed like there was generally conceptual agreement on what needed to be done in order for the Canadian Wheat Board to actually help producers through its single desk authority. And that's uh, one thing just to review is, you know, Canada's a small producer of relatively small of the total wheat production, just say roughly 5%, but a much larger uh, percentage of the total um, of, the, of the export market. So it's like in there, it's roughly around 20%. But in order to do that, it seems that economists generally conceptually agreed that it needed to be able to discriminate between different buyers of wheat. So between, let's say, Japan and, uh, I don't know, another major importer, um, Indonesia. And so there seemed to be agreement on that. So then 
they had to be able to discriminate, and then they had to be able to stop the arbitrage, right. which basically just means that they can't sell a lot of wheat to Japan at a relatively lower price, and then they turn around and sell it to Indonesia at a higher price. Um, so, actually, it would be the other way around. You would, would sell, what, what the wheat board would like to do is, um, and um, I think has been um, practicing, is selling, if you, if you like shorting the, the Japanese market a little bit, keep the price up there, um, selling it, um, the, the Indonesians won't pay quite so much. Uh, they have a much more elastic demand, receiving a lower price in the um, Indonesian market. And what you don't want is that grain going into ne Indonesia to uh, find its way back into the Japanese market. Okay, sure. The, the key is that they can rate, give different prices, and then, in, in you're saying in this case, it would make they wouldn't want Indonesia to ship it back to Japan. I, exactly. And so I think in our field, there's general agreement about that, and that. If they can do that and also um, ensure that their costs, let's say, of handling the grain don't increase relative to an alternative system, then they can provide benefits to producers. And that was kind of the conceptual issue. I thought, well, there's broad agreement. Then I thought, from looking at a bunch of the articles, and I'll make some of the links available to various articles on the website, but then I thought, well, there were there's few studies and they generally seem to disagree. Is that a correct characterization of you know, a little bit of the backdrop about how kind of the ag economists have tackled this issue? Yeah, um, yeah. and let me just um, take that even a little bit further, I think, Brady, because um, you're right. This issue about whether the wheat board had the ability to be able to, as a single seller, whether it was able to get higher prices for farmers, in part is a reflection of the situation that was in place certainly at the time that the wheat board was formed in the 1930s. What we have to do is sort of cast our, our minds back to the, the debates that were going on, not so much actually in the 30s, but in the 20s. What the, the, the farm movement in Canada, in Western Canada at that time, had prior to the, to the First World War had dealt with what they thought was sort of the immediate problem, which was a, a lack of competition amongst the the um, grain elevator companies. One of the major concerns by farmers, say, in 1900, 1905, was that they were getting squeezed on the amount that they were being charged for just handling that grain. Um, they were, the, the fees that they were paying were too high. Um, and that, uh, there was also concerns about the, the power that the railways had um, and the, the prices that they were charging and the access that they were um, um, uh, making available. The farmers responded to those problems by creating a whole set of elevator cooperatives. And these were by province, and um, um, some of them were, were pan, um, sort of Western Canada, with the consequence that by the beginning of the war, there was a consensus, and I think, that that problem had been sort of addressed. Then there was a sort of hiatus with the war, and when the world came back to normal commerce um, starting in the 1920s, the problem that the farmers saw themselves facing was no longer the same one that they had before the war, but it was a different one. They now felt that they weren't getting as good a price on the world market as they should um, be getting. They felt that there was, um, if you like, some market power being exerted. Um, they were um, having their prices depressed um, even um, at the same time that these companies were turning around and, and, and getting a very nice price on the world market. So classic sort of case of, of 
both monopsony power relative to uh, the farmers and then these, these uh, traders having some monopoly power on the world market. And the precursor to the Canadian Wheat Board was actually a voluntary marketing system established by three of the cooperatives in Western Canada, what eventually were ended, ended up being called the Three Prairie Pools, one in Alberta, one in Saskatchewan, one in Manitoba. They formed something called the Central Selling Agency, where they agreed to take all of the grain that they were um, handling through their elevator systems. These are the same elevator systems that had been established earlier and market that grain centrally onto the world um, markets. And at, at that time, the, the major market was Liverpool. That scheme was in place for about four years um, or maybe three. And then it collapsed uh, with the collapse of the stock market in 1929. Um, what happened was that the central selling agency um, and then the, these co-ops had made promises to farmers uh, in fact, had given initial payments to the farmers worth um, X amount, and all of a sudden the world price had fallen um, dramatically below X, and they weren't able to cover off um, these. Uh, um, um, they weren't actually able to raise the money that they'd already committed to farmers, and they um, essentially had um, a debt on their hands. The board then was actually, um, the, the first Canadian Wheat Board was actually created by government um, to take ownership of this grain that the Central Selling Agency had uh, accumulated and to dispose of it in the world market. Um, and this, of course, was in the 1930s. And one of the things that the board did um, at that time was to dispose of it in some kind of fashion that, that didn't aggravate the already very, very weak prices that um, the world was seeing at that particular point in time. Um, I, I say all of this because this was the environment and the mindset that the Wheat Board was then when, when it was finally um, created in 1935 and then again sort of reaffirmed in, in the 1940s, that this was the mindset that farmers had, that the board was a vehicle for getting additional market power and for price, practicing price discrimination of the kind that you um, so nicely described. That view kind of continued. And I think for, for, for those of us who um, are interested in, in how... Um, marketing systems work, this is a great example where um, sort of norms and, um, if you like, institutions get established. Um, and they're very, actually very hard to, to get rid of. Because this, this view actually prevailed then um, for um, uh, up until, I think, roughly about um, 10 or 15, 20 years ago. Um, interestingly, um, it was still prevailing in the 1980s when um, there there was actually a period of time when it's it, it was documented, and this is this is part of this debate that was going on um, in the 1980s about the the role of the wheat board. Um, it was actually documented in the 1980s that the board was um, able to price discriminate and get some higher prices. Um, this, of course, um, was be happening though at the time of, of the United States Export Enhancement Program, where the Export Enhancement Program was in fact creating some quite dramatic divisions between um, the, the prices in the consuming countries around the world for, for grains. And the Wheat Board, um, because of its single desk selling, because of the fact that it could um, stop some of that arbitrage from occurring, um, was, um, I, I think, was able to actually um, obtain some of the, the, those benefits from price discrimination. And, and you're right, this was um, a focus of 
um, a great deal of, of, of discussion. And part of the debate where people saying, well, the board is able to do this and the board is not able to do this, part of that, of, of the debate actually is because I, I think in retrospect, people were talking about different things. Some people were talking about, was the board able to do it when the export enhancement program was in place? Other people were saying, can it do it generally? And um, there is always the case uh, when you're not debating the same thing, uh, it's quite easy to come up with opposing views. That's not to say that there weren't some sort of fundamental issues that were present between the economists that were um, debating these issues. And I think here it's... Um, I guess I would take a look at the current debate around what's the appropriate macro policy in, for instance, in particular the U.S. today. You have the one group saying um, it is imperative that we have an expansionary, some kind of expansionary policy. Um, government spending needs to uh, stay fairly high to, to provide some um, extra demand. And then there's another group that's saying, no, in fact, what we have to do is get our fiscal house in order and cut back dramatically on expenditures and, for instance, in, uh, perhaps even um, lower taxes. In one way, that debate, the one today, isn't, it's partly about the economics. There's no question about that. But it's also that this current debate is about an ideological position. Um, do you believe that government has a role in the market or not? Um, do you believe in uh, freedom um, of choice as the sort of highest order or there, are there other considerations that, that need to be taken into account? And I think that same ideological debate was alive and well in all the discussions of the team of the Canadian Wheat Board historically. It wasn't just a debate about whether or not the Wheat Board was able to price discriminate, though it was about that, but it was also about fundamental ideas about how society should be put together and um, what kind of rules should govern society and whether or not people should have, what, what degree of freedom should people have um, in um, the choices that they make. And, and this seems to be a long-standing debate in our field. I mean, starting with, well, continue from Adam Smith on to Hayek and Keynes. What is the economic, what is the appropriate economic role of government? Very, very much so. And you know, it's it's funny, Brady, at least funny, uh, droll kind of funny, that on the one hand, we have some tools and concepts to say something about, um, which I think all economists would agree um, upon. So um, we say, yes, um, let the market work, but um, if there are externalities, then maybe we need to pay attention to this. If there's public goods that um, need to be provided, we need to think about that. We have to be concerned about issues of market power. And that may be a reason for, for government intervention. If, um, information asymmetries can, can be certainly be um, another reason for government intervention, as well as, um, I think, some sense of, of uh, keeping some kind of equity um, amongst um, citizens um, in, in a society. That one's much less agreed upon, but, but, but there are certainly some people that would, would include that on the list. And despite the fact that we have the, that agreement on those concepts and how they might be used, it's fascinating how often it steps over into I, what I think is another debate, which is, should government be involved at all? Um, and that's often how it's, how it's uh, framed. And, and so it becomes black and white rather than, than shades of gray. Yeah, the American institutionalists, they, 
uh, and I'm speaking mainly of Warren Samuels and Alan Schmidt and Dan Bromley, it seemed to me my reading of what they were saying is they didn't find this comparison of a market without government and a market with government so useful because they argued that government was, we were always usually comparing different forms of government and governance as opposed to the absent of one. Do you think that's... I, I think that that's absolutely correct. Um, and the more that I've looked at this, and in, in particular, and, and again, we want to come back to the Canadian Wheat Board. The Canadian Wheat Board provides a really good indication. It, it's, it's a very good little sort of case study of this, where becomes when you really start to think about this, you can have a so-called uh, free market, marketing freedom. This is the way that the this the new system that we will will be going to is being portrayed and but what is forgotten by many people is that that only works because um, you have government doing a, a whole range of things, making sure, for instance, that that, that there are courts that uh, if there are disputes they can be um, settled. There are the government, of course, is providing a, a whole set of property rights that are um, absolutely critical to the operation of not just this market, but, but in fact, um, all markets. And in addition, there's a set of social services that are being provided by government to farmers, to the workers um, that uh, are employed by the, the railways or the, the grain elevator companies that are all hinged on some kind of government intervention. And to, to take out um, that government completely, we don't know what that picture looks like unless we take a look perhaps at, you know, the transition that occurred, say, in, um, in Russia as it moved from the Soviet Union to its um, current state, where you saw that com sort of almost complete breakdown of the system until they needed to put something back in place. And what they've put it back in place, of course, is um, something very, very different than what we've put in place. They, but they have put a set of rules in place. This is a set of rules um, largely determined by a, a very powerful oligarchy as opposed to government um, in the sense that we know it. But even if we, we kind of agree, I think conceptually, that, that government will be in play in either system with and without the wheat board, the change in government or the change in governance structure usually benefits some and hurts others. What, what is your thinking about how the change, this change moving uh, from the single desk of selling authority to, to its absence, how will these different interests be affected? And what are those different interests in your, in your, from your standpoint? Yeah, well, let me just uh, sort of step back. What we're seeing here, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating um, change. So, you know, as, a, as, as an economist, as a social scientist, this kind of natural experiment um, of a change in a fundamental change in a marketing system doesn't happen very often. Um, this is an interesting thing to, uh, to, to be able to watch, um, sort of, if you like, in real time. Because Sorry, but it, is, this sub, is, 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 is this substantively different than, for example, the change in, in other... The, the the Australian wheat board, uh, the Australian wheat board, or something like that. I mean, have there been other examples of this, or is? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there are there are you know lots of other examples. Um, the, the wheat board would, um, wheat board in Australia would be an example. Um, we've you can go into you know developing countries around the world. And in the last um, twenty years, uh, one of the big things was the dismantlement of 
um, some of these uh, state-owned um, um, schemes for, say, the you know the marketing of uh, coffee or what have you, uh, where they were replaced with markets. Um, those were as equally as as fundamental. So we're not unique in that, but it is our chance to see one of these things um, up front and personal. Um, at least what what I've learned over the years um, as I've looked at these things, I, I can take a look at what's going on in Australia, but at some level, I just don't understand what's going on because I don't know all of the institutions. I don't know the history. I don't know um, all of the, the the little things that actually make um, a big difference to the to to the story, um, and I certainly don't know that when it comes to what's going on in the developing uh, world. Um, I can get the, the the broad sense, but to be able to really see the more mi- micro changes that are going on, you have to know the system quite well. Um, and so for me, this is my own, um, I guess, um, personal um, one. These kind of major structural changes. You know, the political scientists um, call them episodic changes, where um, they th- there's there's a there's a an abrupt change. Uh, you move from one system to the next, and then um, you go for um, a substantial period of time where you don't have any. You have change, and there's modifications and so forth, but the the basic structure stays uh, more or less the same. These things occur in large part because. Um, and now I'm I'm going to the to the political science literature. These structural breaks occur because typically one party that has been um, opposed to it either opposes the you know what was the existing system or believes that the new that a new system would would benefit uh, them um, substantially, and they get to the point where they have sufficient political power. Um, and the political scientists call this, they express this in terms of de facto political power to actually be able to change the rules of the game. Um, and that's what we're seeing today is um, a change in the rules of the game. And it, it has come about because finally there was, um, and, and this was a, um, a combination of the electoral results plus the interest of particular groups in supporting um, a change and, and making that case to the government, where there's been a group that now says we want change and there's the actual political means to, to, to be able to do that. So th- this suggests to me that th- these are difficult changes to bring about. To bring this about means that there, there must be a group that sees this as being um, highly beneficial to them. I think those groups are fairly well understood. I think it's um, clearly the railways. Um, I think clearly the grain um, handling companies uh, feel that they are, are going to benefit from this move. There will be other smaller players in the in the system that also see a benefit. They are typically have not had a lot of uh, of, of effect in terms of the um, uh, lobbying the system. I'm thinking about. Um, Consulting companies that are um, providing services to the railways or to uh, farmers or so forth, um, they see a, a new market for their goods um, and services, but um, they, they weren't particularly um, influential. Um, I think some of the grain traders, if, if we can separate those from the grain companies, were in, in certainly in favor. Um, so if that's the case, you're getting this push to change the system from a group that believes that they're going to um, to, to benefit. And they will then likely put a set of rules in place that, in fact, will benefit them um, over what um, the current system is. Um, Otherwise, um, why make the change? So does this tell us anything? Well, it says that if the 
you know, if all we have is a zero-sum game, and a zero-sum game is one where when you change the system from one, from, if you like, from A to B, the total size of the pie remains the same, then if one group benefits, then the other groups or, or groups or whatever or group um, has to actually uh, become worse off. Um, and so that suggests that there are some other players, if it's a zero-sum game, and I'll come back to that, that there's other players that are going to um, not benefit from this. My guess is that that's going to be perhaps certain grain handlers that aren't able to compete with um, some of the, the, the big companies like Viterra and, um, and Cargill. Um, I think some of them um, may find themselves um, at a disadvantage in this new world. I think you also have to put into that group of people who, who um, are likely not to benefit some of the farmers. Some of the farmers, I think, will um, find themselves um, better off. But I think there's going to be a group of farmers who are going to find themselves less well off. And these are going to be farmers who probably are located further away from places where they can get some competition from grain elevator companies where uh, they're not located near um, uh, the main lines of the railways. These are perhaps some of the, far the smaller farmers who don't have a large volume of grain with which to bargain. These are probably some of the people who would um, end up not benefiting um, from this change. Now, if we have, if this change that we're about to see is not a zero-sum game, but in fact is a positive-sum game, then it is possible for, if you like, all groups to potentially benefit. Now, how could this be a positive-sum game? Well, the only way it can be a positive-sum game is if by making this change you create an opportunity, well, one, you reduce um, some of the transaction costs um, and so forth in the system and you are able to make this, the system um, operate more efficiently. So if there's efficiency gains that come with this, then that would be one source of potentially some gains by, by all of, the, all of the, the participants. The other possibility um, in addition to efficiency gains, is that the, the system could create a better set of incentives for innovation and creation of new value. That new value then would be one that could be distributed amongst all the players. I think there's been a lot of discussion around whether or not uh, this is implicitly, this it hasn't been an explicit discussion uh, around whether or not um, this, this transformation is um, zero-sum or positive-sum. We won't know the answer to this until... Um, well off into the future, and even then it's going to be very hard to go back and do the counterfactual. In my mind, the more interesting thing is the rhetoric that's used, and um, what you see is the group that is clearly lobbying and pressuring for the change. Um, they cast almost all of their discussion in terms of there being either efficiency gains or gains in terms of innovation. This becomes almost a mantra that they uh, repeat. And um, this could well be true, but it, it is an unexamined position that, that I think is, is repeated almost by rote. And I think it's because th there is this recognition that the way to sell this is to paint it as a positive sum game. Whether it is or not, I, I don't know. But certainly from those people that want to make the change, it's uh, highly beneficial to paint it as a positive sum game because that at least allows the potential for everyone to, to gain. Now, let me just finish this off by saying even if it is a positive sum game, that doesn't mean that everybody gains. The new rules of the game will determine whether or not everyone gains um, or not. I think if we take a look at most of the of the changes that have gone on, not just in in, in 
grain handling, but in, in other systems, um, there are inevitably um, groups that are left behind. The, the rules simply are not conducive to a particular some some groups are benefiting, and uh, I, I think that that's likely to be the case here. That there there will be there will be, there will be some of the players that, that that won't benefit from this change. I always use this example in in, in my classes of the ba- asking students why basketball players get paid different salaries, and the normal set of responses are. Uh, some are fast, some jump high, some can pass the ball, some have charisma, some don't. But you rarely hear them mention that the the height of the rim is uh, 10 feet. Yeah, that's right. Because clearly if you, if you change the rim from 10 to 5 feet, you would set in motion uh, uh, immediately a very different set of comparative advantages. And I always, because I love basketball, I always think, and I'm not that tall, had the basketball rim... Um, been shortened I would have been in the NBA and I think you know if I hear what you're saying you're saying well we've got a rule change and it's very likely that it will change the comparative advantages amongst farmers and um, grain handlers and we'll have to wait and see whether that change of the height of the rim actually ends up expanding the number of people who watch or the money coming in to to the to the NBA or to the basketball league a a very nice analogy um, Brady I may use that you don't. Feel, feel free. But as we go forward, uh, Murray, um, what kind of questions should we be asking ourselves as people who are watching it and involved in it? What are, what are your thoughts or, and how are, or how are you going to watch? I mean, what do you think we should just take with us through this entire uh, experience, as, as you put, that is unique to us to get to watch up close at least? Yeah, um, very good question. I am going to put my economist's hat on and say I think this is a, a, a wonderful opportunity to actually address a, a question that has intrigued economists since almost since day one, but really certainly since uh, Coase wrote his classic paper on the nature of the firm, and that is, uh, but 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 this this discussion actually goes way back before Coase, and, and that is. You know, how should we organize a system? So if we think about the grain handling and transportation system, what we need is if this is going to operate effectively um, and make people better off and uh, provide incomes and uh, livelihoods for, and careers for people, it needs to operate efficiently and effectively. And to do so, there's a whole host of coordination and cooperation problems that have to be um, solved. So you have to, you know, go back to the beginning of our conversation of that whole process involved in getting grain from a farm to port and then off to um, a miller um, halfway around the world. And in fact, it's even bigger than that because um, you have to think about what the farmer was growing and why they were growing that particular crop and were they growing the right crops that year to to meet the, the things that consumers were going to um, be looking for. How do you organize these systems so that they behave in a way that creates the incentives for people to do the things that, that need to be done, but also create something that, that's beneficial um, to society? And this is, in, in my mind, the question that economics has been trying to answer for um, the last 300 and some years. And we've got some ways along that. We say markets are one way, um, a very good way of uh, allowing this to occur. And we, we have, you know, Adam Smith, um, you mentioned Hayek. Hayek in his 1945 paper does a masterful job of saying, here's why the market will work. And all you need to do is pay attention to a price. You don't need to know why the price is going up. 
Um, all you need to know is that the price is going up and you adjust your actions accordingly. And by doing so, you will make the system operate and coordinate in a, in a way that um, is, is beneficial. This is, if you like, Hayek's version of the, of the invisible hand. Um, and I think his um, presentation of it is, um, is, is really astounding. But, and here's the but, what Hayek overlooks, or let's put it this way, Hayek's story works fabulously as long as you don't have what we've now come to, to look as the, the, the reasons why markets might fail. Hayek's story works um, wonderfully well if you don't have externalities. So if people's decisions based upon solely on price don't have negative impacts on other groups. Um, so if that price, um, and this is, of course is why we've moved to try to internalize into prices um, some of the, say, environmental impacts that uh, uh, particular decisions are having. So we, we need to worry about externalities. We need to worry about public goods. Public goods don't work. Um, you can't watch prices and, uh, um, and make good decisions about the provision of public goods. Information asymmetries, where you need to know more than just price. You need to know something about the quality of the individual or the quality of the product that's being produced. And if this quality is difficult to observe, then that market system may not work very well, or it has the potential not to work so well. And then finally, this system relying on prices works very well if you have lots of competition. Take away the competition, and um, you start to have some significant problems due to, to, to market power. Uh, and, and certainly what I'm going to be doing is I look at this Canadian wheat board um, transformation or the, the transformation of the grain handling and transportation system is to take a look at what are the externalities in the public goods and the information asymmetries and the market power factors that are in play in this particular sector. And do we need to worry about some of those or can we just let the market work? And what I find fascinating right now is that this debate is very much in its um, infancy. Um, and, and that's probably to be expected, although people kind of knew that this might, might happen um, until the Conservatives really an announced their intentions. It, it wasn't real. And, and so people now, I think, are really coming to, to the table to, to, to debate these issues and discuss these issues. Where uh, I think we're still at on this looking forward, and I think this is where the, the work needs to go in, is to say which of these issues are really important and which, you know, um, they're not so important. What we've seen so far is a, a bit of a fallback to that ideological position that we, dis we discussed earlier. So, for instance, there is just here um, a week ago, there is a working group on marketing freedom that presented their report to uh, the Minister of Agriculture, Jerry Ritz. And that, that's an interesting title, Working Group on Marketing Freedom. This seems to me to, to put the ideological perspective um, front and center rather than saying, what are these economic things that we really need to think about to make sure that this market operates efficiently and effectively um, down the road? And if I take a look at that particular report, they have taken account of some of the public goods. Um, they have recognized that there are some public goods that are no longer going to be provided once the, the Canadian Wheat Board um, disappears. And Murray, could you just give us an example of one of the, sorry to interrupt you, but an example of one of yeah. those public goods? Yeah. Um, the one that they actually pay particular attention to is the funding for research and development um, and market development. 
right now the wheat board is collecting a levy um, on the part of farmers that that goes to those activities and without the wheat board in place that levy wouldn't be collected and um, there would be no way to fund um, some basic crop productivity research for instance interest in this working group has uh, recognized that that's an issue and they've got some some recommendations that I think are are pretty good on that score. On the other hand, if you take the issue of, say, market power, um, they have, for the most part, said, no, market power is not going to be um, a problem. We are going to have a, a perfectly competitive market and we don't have to worry about access of producers to producer cars in short lines, access of groups that are outside the, the, the major grain companies to, say, the port facilities, uh, so that they can actually sell to international buyers. That issue they uh, has largely been kind of ignored, largely because I think that there is kind of a, a, a built-in sense that there's going to be a, a fairly competitive market operating. And this is in spite of, of what we know, particularly about the rail industry. This is a, a highly monopolistic industry with significant market power that has actually been commented on in a number of successive reports um, over the last 10 years. And so this is where I think we need to get the debate is um, let's, we have to actually really think very, very um, hard about whether or not there are market power issues and how we might address them in this new, this new system. So I, I guess, Brady, to kind of wrap up, what's interesting is that there's a set of issues that I think the industry is now just sort of getting their head um, around. And they're, they're looking at the question, what can we do to put in place a, a system for next summer that addresses some of these potential imperfections? Now, um, there, there's, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not these imperfections are going to be there or not. But the debate around this is starting to happen. What's, of course, interesting is that it's it will be exactly these same issues that will be the focus of ongoing discussions in the grain handling industry for probably the next um, 75 years. If we go back to what I said earlier, we probably won't have a regime change for um, at least that length of time. And so, in a sense, it is those set of issues that, um, as, as, uh, and I would say as well, as well as this question about who ultimately wins or loses from this change in the rules, uh, whether the pie does get bigger and, and, and to what extent it gets shared, these are going to be the issues that are not just on top of mind here for the next um, nine months, but in fact on um, top of mind for the, the, the foreseeable future. All right. Well, I think that is a perfect ending point for, for this podcast. And Murray, I've learned a lot and I really appreciate you spending time with us talking about your thoughts on, on the, uh, the Canadian Wheat Board. Thanks, Brady. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.